0: The Clearfield Public Library in Williamsville, New York, was a great place to fall in love with books. If you walked in and asked a friendly librarian about, say, science fiction, she would walk you over to a section that started with Asimov and ended with Zelazny. And if you were a diligent reader, it would take you about two years to work your way through it. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. Akimbo. We'll be back in a minute to talk about the algorithms of division. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Sometimes it seems like if you want to start a business, you need a rich uncle or a bank or a VC. But that's not true. Some of the greatest projects of all time have been bootstrapped, built with a different model. The Bootstrappers Workshop is back from Akimbo. You can find out all the details at akimbo.com go. It's a chance to build the project that you've dreamed of to find independence to make a difference. You can be a bootstrapper, but it helps to know the best practices. I hope you'll check it out Akimbo.com/go The Clearfield Public Library is a fine metaphor for the way media used to work. TV networks in the United States, there were three of them, four or five, if you count generously. Libraries built the Dewey Decimal System to organize their books, but there was a finite number of books in the library, 10,000, 20,000, maybe a big library might have as many as 40,000 books in it, but it was finite. If you were the librarian and you were picking books to be in the library, if you were Fred Silverman, who was NBC's genius programmer in the 1970s, and you were picking shows to put on TV, you had the same mindset, which is, there are constraints. And the constraints revolve around the fact that you don't have a lot of shelf space. TV network can only show one show at a time, and there's only a few networks on the air. A library can put some books in the science fiction section, something between Asimov and Zelazny, but they certainly can't put every book in that section. And then, think about the cost to the customer. If you go to a bookstore, you have to buy the book, pay for it, before you read it. If you go to the library, sure, there's no incremental cash cost, but you can only take out a finite number of books, and you can only read one book at a time. And so, yes, we judge a book by its cover, because the cost of sampling is pretty high. For a TV network, the stakes were far higher, because not only are they spending millions of dollars to make a show, but the opportunity cost was huge because if they made 10 episodes of a bad show and didn't ignore sunk costs and ran them, they would be losing market share to the other two networks. And that market share was measured in tens of millions of dollars. So these constraints all conspired to push toward the middle that the purpose of discovery was to turn someone into a fan. It's true but not to turn them into a fan based on division, but to turn them into a fan based on connection. Now what the TV networks want is for people to watch a show because everybody else is watching it. The library can't do that because only one person can read any given book at a time, but the library really likes it when it knows which books to buy. That buying a book, putting it on the shelf of the library, and having no one take it out for three years That's a failure. Better to group people's interest into broad categories and then hit the highlights of those categories so that user satisfaction can go up. If you go to a library today and say to the librarian, I'm looking for a book on how to sharpen tools, I'd like it to be illustrated and at least 300 pages long, the odds are they don't. Because they don't have a business model that supports carrying something that's that obscure. So you know where I'm going at first, which is the long tail shows up, which is Amazon shows up, which is Netflix shows up. Suddenly, shelf space is not a constraint. Suddenly, not only does digital make the warehouse infinitely big, but it also means that if you can aggregate a large audience, you can carry not just a few books on sharpening tools, but every book on sharpening tools. Not only can you carry one or two or three Italian documentaries, but you can carry all of them. And so iTunes shows up with its long tail of music. The last stats that I heard are that millions of tracks in the iTunes store have been listened to just a few times, which makes perfect sense because it doesn't cost anything to put a track there, and it does cost something to listen to all of them. Okay, so far, so good. This was celebrated by lots of people, including me, because if we open the doors, gatekeepers aren't deciding what's important and what's not. Readers get to find what they truly want. Viewers can engage in the things they want to see. And so out of nowhere, a guy named Psy makes a video called Gangnam Style. that gets seen by more than a billion people. That's insane. He does that without a lot of fancy gatekeepers, with nothing in the way of promotion. It's possible because the gatekeepers weren't there. But then a shift happens, and the shift is this. What would happen if the librarian at the Clearfield Public Library got a commission? And what if that person's commission was based not only on how many books do you take out, but how deep do you go into the edges of taking out books, because a whale, someone who reads a lot of books, is easier to profit from than someone who just dabbles and shows up every once in a while. How do we turn people from dabblers into whales? How do we gain their commitment to our platform and encourage them to go deeper and deeper and deeper to sample more things? Also, if you're a creator of content and we start paying you with ego points because you have followers, or actual cash, because you are attracting people to what you have to say, some of you will decide to make something for the mainstream, but you will soon discover that the mainstream is really crowded, and it's very hard to have a shot at all of getting attention and loyalty for the mainstream. But as I wrote about in Purple Cow 15 years ago, the edges, otaku, purple cows, remarkable things, things where there are few substitutes, you might not get a lot of people, but the people you get are really into it. And so, the algorithm arrives. 25 years ago, Patty Mays, a professor at the MIT Media Lab working with several collaborators, came up with Firefly Networks, originally called Homer. It was the birth of collaborative filtering. Collaborative filtering is better known as People who like this also like that. And you've seen that everywhere you look on the web. This idea that it can recommend something to you that you might be interested in is a revelation. But in order for it to be interesting and not just trivial, what it needs to leave out are the things that everyone else likes too. So if you're watching Seinfeld and it says people who like Seinfeld also like everyone likes Raymond, you haven't learned anything at all because it hasn't given you any specific insight. And so the algorithm is tuned to find the specifics to take you further down a rabbit hole. And the rabbit hole is wonderful when, for example, you're exploring jazz and you're listening to a lot of Art Blakey and it says, oh, by the way, Les McCann has a song that people who like Art Blakey really like. And now you're stunned to discover Les McCann and Eddie Harris live at Montreux. That's a big win. And so collaborative filtering opens the window to go deeper into our hobbies and our passions. My question is, what happens when we aim it at things like racism, like conspiracy theories, like anger, like violence, like the way people interact with pornography or fetishes. It's one thing to encourage people to go further into whatever hobby makes them happy. But what happens when those hobbies start to divide us? What happens when those hobbies start to have violent side effects? I don't believe that the algorithm was built with intent. I believe what happened was hundreds or thousands of programmers, all incentivized by simple metrics, ended up experimenting with algorithms and human nature until they hit upon something that worked ever better than they expected. And what they figured out is this. If you can find someone who has a little bit of interest and somehow radicalize them into someone who has a lot of interest, that pays off far more than satisfying the needs of someone who's a little interested and then pushing them back to the mainstream. That if you can take someone who's mildly interested in woodworking and turn them into someone who understands why you should use a piece of glass to put the final edge on a blade for your spokeshave, that person is going to go deep. And when they go deep into your long tail, your company benefits, your stock price goes up. And so Pinterest turns people who were mildly interested in seeing someone else's couch into people who are obsessed at going ever deeper into what a Chesterfield is and why it matters. And so Politico says, oh, all you wanted to know is who won some election? They take that person and push them further and further and further down a rabbit hole because it's their rabbit hole. And they don't want you to say, oh, no, now I'm going to go read about Dune the movie Because they don't come out ahead if you read about Dune the movie. They need you to get deep, to become radical about the way you think about politics, to doom scroll, to go ever deeper into the minutia. And so, as Chris Anderson pointed out years ago, the long tail is real. Some pundits dismissed it early on because there wasn't enough math to show that the long tail was paying off. But now clearly, the long tail is all of it, that hits aren't what they used to be but the number of people who are creating for selfish reasons out on the long tail keeps increasing. And so the algorithm is working. It is working to radicalize the people who engage with any form of media to push them deeper down whatever rabbit hole they were looking at. So first you went to look for a puppy, but then it got a hint that you were interested in little tiny dogs. And then it pushed you toward teacup dogs. And the next thing you know, You're not happy unless you own a dog that weighs less than two pounds because the algorithm pushed you there. The pet store never would've. The pet store would've said, we got four pets. Which one do you want? Take one. You want a lizard? We have one of those too. But once we have an infinite amount of shelf space because we're all connected digitally, the algorithm does what the algorithm does. It divides us. It divides us because there's a profit in doing so. Not because it's the right thing to do, but just as mass media pushed us toward mass, and just as the typical supermarket pushed us toward ketchup, long-tail media pushes us to the edges. And so now we need to ask a couple questions. The first one is, are we glad? Are we glad that this pernicious algorithm touches every part of our lives, whether it's dating or entertainment or home improvement or how we spend our money, or what we retire on, or politics, pushes us over and over again apart, away from mass, away from the middle. Is that helping? And second, if you're an investor, the question is, okay, but for the people who really push this, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the three biggest ones, is it enough already? What would happen if they simply changed the algorithm? What would happen if somebody now with intent, a human being, not an evolutionary algorithm, but a person, said, we're gonna turn the algorithm upside down. That every chance we get, we're going to push people back toward the center. What would happen if you had to work to find the stuff that was way out on the fringes, and that the algorithm wasn't always pushing you for deeper or more? Well, one thing that would happen in the short run Is usage would go down a bit. But because these companies really don't have any competitors, that's okay because they'll still do fine. The real question is it's your job, but it's also the way you've chosen to spend your life. That the people I'm talking to in this podcast rant, the people who run YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, don't need to work for a living, not one of them. So at some point, they have to stop saying, I'm just doing my job. At some point, they can't say, this is what the shareholders want, because responsibility kicks in. And I'm wondering if we've thought hard about what responsibility the people who control the algorithm have, even if they didn't make it on purpose. Google has been hiding behind their algorithm for a really long time. But every once in a while, there's enough of an outcry that a human being goes in and changes it around. I think there's enough of an outcry right now about division to say, you know what? This division, it's not making our lives better. It's not leading to the outcomes we were hoping for. It is not giving us peace of mind or creating a world we are proud of. What would happen if we turned the algorithm upside down? Because I know we can. It is not one of Newton's laws of physics. It is a choice. And simply because we didn't make the choice doesn't mean a choice can't be made now. And there's nothing stopping three or four or five people. That's all it would take to make the decision to take responsibility for fundamentally turning the algorithm upside down. Because there is scarcity. The internet made a mistake about scarcity. It looks like infinite shelf space and infinite choice and an infinite number of creators means there's no scarcity. But there is because there's a scarcity of trust and there's a scarcity of connection. Peace of mind is more scarce than ever before. I, for one, would prefer more of all three. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a question from a listener, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? What is the time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops I'd love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. One question to get us going this week. Here we go.
1: Hi, Seth. This is Raman in North Carolina. Thanks so much for this podcast. As a long-time listener, I'm familiar with your critiques of Google and Facebook and practices of those companies that have had a negative impact on our society and culture. But while I'm sure I'm forgetting something, I don't think I've heard you say quite as much about the impact of Amazon beyond the great points you've made about the role of the Kindle in remaking the book industry and Amazon's role in the, in the long tail in general. You have made admirable use of the Amazon platform as part of your book launches and sometimes have links to Amazon in your blog posts. I live in a rural place, and I'm certainly not immune to the incredible convenience of the everything store. But we also know that Amazon has been tough competition for local businesses of all sorts and also small suppliers. I feel like Amazon kind of personifies the race to the bottom that you often talk about. And we hear a lot of stories about Amazon warehouses and the treatment of their workers that don't make me feel all that great about giving them my money. So my question is really just this. What are your thoughts about the impact of the Amazon behemoth on our culture? Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for this question. If you go to relentless.com, you'll see that it still takes you to amazon.com. Relentless was the very first name for Amazon. And Jeff wasn't kidding when he named it that. First, let's do a flashback to 25 or 28 years ago. Back then in the 90s, there were more than 10,000 independent bookstores. There are still quite a few independent bookstores, but not enough. But back then, there were well over 10,000 of them. If we figure that the typical bookstore had 30,000 books in it, Some had far more than that, some had less, but let's pick 30,000. That means that there were 30,000 times 10,000 or 300 million books sitting in bookstores waiting for somebody to walk in and buy one. At a retail price of $20 each, that's $6 billion worth of inventory just waiting for somebody to go to the right bookstore on the right day to buy a book that's in stock. This is clearly incredibly inefficient. And when Amazon showed up, their original offering of any book you want will get it for you was a godsend for many readers. Because while the typical bookstore might have had 25 or 30,000 books and a big bookstore might have had double that, there were millions and millions Of books in print. I still remember hearing from my mom in the 90s about a phone call that she got. She ran an independent bookstore at a museum in Buffalo, New York. And the phone call was, hey, we're this new company called Amazon. We think you have a copy of this art book. If we send you a FedEx label and pay the full retail, plus your handling costs, will you ship it directly to our customer? And With a smile, she did just that, because the goal of most bookstores was to get people the book that they wanted. So when Amazon showed up to the marketplace, they were seen as a net benefit. But then the relentless part kicks in. And the difference, I think, between Amazon, and I've given talks and have known folks there for a long time, and Google and Facebook, also places where I've engaged, is that Amazon is completely upfront and clear about some of the basic principles that they're operating under. They are relentless. And the mistake that we made, the challenge that we had, the historical accident is this. For 150 years, we have based the center of our civic culture on the village that sells stuff on retail, That is what separates a fun, thriving, exciting community from one that we really don't understand where the middle of it is, that it's the stores, it's the malls, it's the shops that people are paying attention to. They are our streetscape. Not only that, but we use the money that these merchants earn mostly to pay the landlords, and the landlords use the money to do upkeep, but we also have them pay taxes, and we use those taxes to pay for all sorts of social services. And the other center of our communities, our cities and our towns, is office space. Well, the pandemic has upended the idea of office space, particularly white collar workers who aren't in a factory who can show up via Zoom. And Amazon and a few others have upended the idea of retail. Now, back again, Twenty something years ago. I gave a talk at Walmart. I believe the year was 1999. At the time, and still to this day, Walmart is the biggest retailer in the world. But a long time ago, 22, 23 years ago, Amazon was a tiny blip. So I went there to give a speech in Bentonville, Arkansas, and there was a banner across the offices of Walmart's digital operation. And it said, you can't out Amazon, Amazon. Even 20 years ago, the biggest retailer in the world was afraid of Amazon's relentless focus on a few metrics. So, a couple of these metrics. The first one is this. It is unusual for an innovator to also be the lowest price. And doing both of those things at the same time, while also consistently and persistently being the top rated retailer in America for customer service. Those three things in one place, unheard of. And to do those three things, a relentless approach to metrics, to churning it out, to using wooden doors as desks, to lowering overhead, to having a relentless mindset that says, if we can offer our customers off-the-charts customer service with no questions asked, If we can offer them the lowest price they can find and the best selection, and we can do it while innovating, it's gonna be really hard for someone to stop us. And while they were doing that, cities and towns in the United States and in lots of other places around the world didn't charge them any taxes. And so a hollowing out occurred because Amazon was really good at giving people what they want. And if you give people what they want, they will often take it. Because if in the short run or even the medium run, they come out ahead, they can get what they want, they can have more selection, they can pay less, it's more convenient and faster, well, a lot of people are gonna take them up on that. So one defense that Amazon has for their relentless approach is they have created an enormous amount of wealth for their customers because their customers get more stuff for less money and in less time. But of course, yes, there are side effects to any sort of growth like this. One of them is that the local retailer can no longer be as local as they used to be. And our civic engagement which depended on the local retailer, not just sponsoring the baseball team, but being in and of the community is seriously threatened because we built a big part of that cohesion around the town square and the stuff you can buy there. The other thing that's going on, which as a cultural critic, if that's what I am, I have commented on before, is that Amazon made the decision a really long time ago not to sell anything. They sell everything, but they don't sell anything. What do I mean by that? What I mean is there's a job called a merchant. And what the merchant does is decide what to feature, decide what to promote, decide what to give an end cap to, decide what to publish. That the acts of merchants as being members of the community determine what our culture is like. Because the merchant, particularly the local merchant, or someone like a book publisher says, I'm going to have to live with the consequences of promoting this thing over that thing. And what gets promoted, whether it's by a program director at a local radio station or by a local retailer, determines what we engage with. And what we engage with determines what the culture is like. Well, Amazon, and I've seen this firsthand up close, doesn't have dials for most of its people to turn To shift what's getting promoted and what's not. Yes, there is definitely an algorithm at Amazon and it is hardwired to increase profitability. But it is not responsible, apparently no one is responsible for what are we promoting? What are we leading to? And so if we look at something as simple as the Kindle store, the single best way to get a book to be a bestseller on the Kindle is not to go to a bunch of meetings, do a bunch of promotion, figure out how to get the local bookstore owner to like you, though Amazon has spent years making authors think that if Amazon likes them, something good will happen. Instead, it's to find your smallest viable audience, go way out on the long tail, find a coherent, cohesive group of people and give them exactly what they want. And at some level, this freedom this freedom for all ideas to bubble to the surface based on just the merits, not on the judgment of some merchant, feels attractive, but it can spiral out of control. So the good news is you get something like the Instant Pot. The Instant Pot, a sensation, a bargain, a game changer in your kitchen, I strongly recommend you drop the 89 bucks and give it a try, would have been impossible before Amazon. Because the amount of heft that you would have to have to get enough shelf space, to do enough promotion to keep that shelf space was so big that it's unlikely that the tiny company that launched the Instant Pot could have done it. But with the magic of Amazon selling everything instead of anything, well, once you had a hundred customers who were busy talking about it over and over again to lots of people, suddenly you have a hit on your hands. So this relentless approach creates all sorts of fascinating side effects because part of it is based on an assumption that the other elements of our governance, of our culture, will fill in the gaps. Yes, the cities and towns need to speak up and say, you know those trucks you're sending into our town to deliver everything? Well, they're welcome, but they've got to pay their fair share, their fair share of what it costs us to have safe, clean places to live roads that they can access and on and on. That if institutions don't push back, well then Amazon will continue to be more relentless. Number two, we are used to significant organizations to have local roots and to acknowledge those local roots as they stand up as a corporate citizen. Again, maybe it was a mistake for a hundred years to count on corporate citizenship maybe what we should have done as a community is that these are the rules. And if you wanna focus on making a profit, go ahead. We're gonna focus on making sure that the taxes you pay are put to good use, not just sponsoring a local baseball team, but paying for the library and figuring out how to create civic engagement that isn't dependent on the local corporation. But as Amazon has become one of the most valuable companies in the world, They haven't mostly done that. What Amazon has mostly done is say, we are here to serve our customers and then we're here to serve our shareholders. And finally, we will make sure that our employees are paid at least enough to get them to come work for us, but probably not a lot more. And the employees in senior roles are getting stock options, which get paid off when the shareholders come out ahead. So it is a very clear well-labeled form of corporate capitalism, which is we know exactly why we are here, how we are being measured, and how we're turning the dial. Now, I think it wouldn't cost them very much to be a little bit less relentless, that when we look at some of the choices they make, whether it's about DRM or how things show up in the store or how people are paid, there are ways that Amazon could back off just a little bit to be a better corporate citizen. But I think part of what Amazon is trying to do is to make it clear that they know exactly why they are here and that they are relentless in reaching their goals, turning the crank over and over again. So I am not a dyed-in-the-wool Amazon fan, but I'm also clearly saying, sure, I've been buying from them. That as somebody who has books To sell on behalf of my publisher and promote. I've raised more than $100,000 that I've donated to charity through their affiliate programs. As an author, Amazon made it significantly easier for me to bring books to my readers than all of the years I worked with Barnes & Noble and the other independent bookstores because their agenda wasn't the same as my agenda or even my publisher's agenda. But I think it's worth distinguishing this from Google, because Google relentlessly lies about what they're doing and how they're doing it, and quietly, behind the scenes, shifts their user interface and their algorithms to benefit them, not their users. Facebook, which set out to connect people, to weave together possibility and culture, has done a terrible job of minimizing the negative side effects that many of their algorithmic choices have led to. And so I could go on and on. Running a big company isn't easy. Changing the world is fraught. And there are side effects. And the question is, who is responsible for limiting those side effects and making it so that you make things better than you found them? I'm not sure anybody knows the answer. But in the case of Amazon, at least they're very clear about the game they're playing. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age, and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data what all mba gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says yeah 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 that's good you got access to ideas you got access to information that's awesome but when you're going to show up when you're going to face that blank page when you're going to face the possibilities within you when are you going to face those fears i'm not going to let you hide you got to show up and that's the hardest part And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up.
0: Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.